Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about a recent statement that Pope Francis made about music in the liturgy. I will be including a link to both his statement and the church document, Musicum Sacrum, which he references in his statement in the description of our episode. Also, you're definitely going to want to come to our Young Adult Liturgy Conference in Chicago on April 22nd. You can learn more about that at www.btransfigured.com. And without further ado, episode 38 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. You guys think that when we're talking, we're all listening. Yeah, there it goes again. Dennis just plays a game on his phone every time we do this podcast. Are you ready? When he's he's not. Are you ready to start? That's what we were waiting for that whole time? I don't know what you're talking about. I'm waiting for you. Are you guys ready to start? Yeah, Dennis, you can stop playing Soda Crush. And we can talk like adults and human beings here, if you would like. This is not product placement. It's, just, <laughs> it's what I do. Well, it's like 5.30 in the morning. Gosh. The 25 people who listen to this podcast regularly have now turned it off. You get me out of bed to talk about these smart things. It's t- I'm tired. All right. It's all right. early. Now, there was something that happened recently in the Vatican that people are up in arms about. Well, or some people could, are up in arms a, about. What are you talking about? Now, there is, I really don't, I, I didn't read it, but there was something that Pope Francis said about sacred music that I've been seeing. It's been posted. Lots of people are posting articles about it. And uh, do you guys know what it is? What is this thing? No idea. You're, okay. on, your, you're on your own I don't know podcast. <laughs> no, you're, you're right. There's, uh, uh, we've talked about music on Sacrum a number of times in the podcast. Did, did Pope Francis write that? He did write that. Okay. No. <laughs> no. This is the 1964 oh, right, that's instruction the right. that came out right after Vatican II, right after Sacrosanct Gentilium's the first instruction on how to properly implement the liturgical reforms of the Second Vatican Council. And it was released, this document, Musicam Sacrum, was released in March 1967. So the math means that's about 50 years of its anniversary. Oh, 60, I said 64, sorry. Did you? Yeah, no, no, it's 67. Right. March 5th, 1967. You're right. I always trust Chris on these things. You can edit that out, can't you, Jesse? He won't. No, no <laughs> you guys, people need to know that you can be wrong every once in a while. He takes every opportunity to humiliate me on the podcast. <laughs> now you know how I feel, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going back to Soda Crush. Let me know when you're done. All right. All right, so uh, on March 5th, they had in, at the Holy See, sponsored by some... Uh, different pontifical councils, I think on culture. This uh, is this past March 5th, yeah. 2017. Yes, okay. yes. On its 50th anniversary, they had a conference, a colloquium or some such on Musicam Sacram and how it's, uh, uh, it's life over the last 50 years. And, and the Holy Father, Pope Francis, uh, made an address at some point during the conference. And it's those remarks, Jesse, that... Um, Many people found noteworthy, and there's one particular. Oh, noteworthy! <laughs> See what I, I think did there? yeah, it's on music. Noteworthy, got it. All right, mm-hmm. now you have my attention. But the 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 line that at least uh, in the, in the 
know, the, the post that I've seen that have caught most people's attention is this one, where he says, the encounter with modernity and the introduction of spoken languages in the liturgy has certainly occasioned many problems of languages, forms, musical genres, sometimes a certain mediocrity, superficiality, and banality have prevailed to the detriment of the beauty and intensity of the liturgical celebrations. I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah, that's I have what people never are upset experienced about. Experienced that in my life. <laughs> Mediocre music in a parish. Well, never. that's <laughs> never modernity. Come on. Well, there's your commentary on uh, from the Holy Father on the current state of liturgical music. So, what are we to make of this? Well, Chris? what are we to make? That's not the only th- thing he says, though, on, in the in his address. But this is this is this is the tension, really, which is the uh, I don't know the substance of his remarks, and really goes back to musicam sacram uh, itself is how to hold in proper relationship and balance uh, the traditional patrimony of the church's musical tradition while at the same time uh, applying it to and letting it live in today's liturgical celebrations. How do the, this is the, the million dollar question for whether it's art and architecture or vesture or any of these things, how to bring the, this is what John the 23rd said uh, at the opening of the council, how to bring the, the church's uh, treasury of history into the modern or postmodern world. And in music, there's probably more instructions in the 20th century than maybe any other single liturgical topic, I would think. There's Trollus Illichitudini. God bless you. All the way back in 1903. 1903. And then Pius XI put out a document in 1928. And then Pius XII. And that was intentionally, I didn't know this to you. Yeah, 25 years after Trollus Illichitudini. That's Pius X's Motu Proprio on music that pretty much started the liturgical movement at the the universal level. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Was that me? Yeah, you're still playing Soda Crush. Can you turn that off? Great, thanks. Um, There's a little (laughs) musical note. See how it's in our lives everywhere we go. And in 1955, Pius XII put out another document on music, and they pretty much all say the same thing, that music is integral to the sacred liturgy. Let's finish our historical litany here. In 1958, Musica Sacre Disciplina. Okay. Uh, there's an instruction under Pius XII from the Congregation for Rites that basically summarized all the other documents uh, that had come up in the 20th century to make them easy for people to... Then we had on the in 2003 the centenary on Trale Solitudini. That was by John Paul II. That's the chirograph. That's the, the chirograph. Yeah, but this one Musicam Sacrum from 1967, uh, you know, it really is is the, the the Holy Father says in his in his uh, presentation. You know, it, that was the the first instruction as you as you said too, Dennis, on sacred music, and there really haven't been any more significant musical documents since then. So as you say, there was many leading up to it, but in a certain way, this document is still the normative musical instruction of the Holy See. But wasn't there a document like 1972 that said we should throw away the Graduale Romanum, we should never sing chant again, chant is not the music of the church, that hymns should dominate Wait, everything? Wait, what, do- what document is that? I'm familiar <laughs> with that one. I don't know. There, there seems to be no such document, and nonetheless, that is sort of the... Uh, the popular magisterium. Oh, you were just making a joke. Okay. I was, uh, yeah, I need more coffee, but it's, okay. I'm a little sarcastic. So still, I guess my, my question here is, is, is what Pope Francis said, is, is he saying anything new? No. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, th- that point right there is again, noteworthy is significant, right? Um, there is, there, there's a certain hermeneutic, uh, in reading the church's mind on what does that mean it means uh, an interpretive method 
to how the church, in this instance, how the church speaks of, thinks about, and is to uh, implement liturgical music that is consistent through the past 100 years and is still the same today. Right. In fact, Pope Francis himself says in this little talk, there have been no new documents produced by the magisterium on the argument over the nature of sacred music. However, the Musicum Sacrum as a document is still very timely, and he quotes a particular phrase that explains what the timeliness. What's that? Well, let's yeah. So he 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 makes explicit reference. He quotes a, a number of passages from Musicum Sacrum in his presentation. Uh, let's take the first one. He says the premise mentioned in Musicum Sacrum is very timely. He says liturgical action has a more noble form when it is celebrated in song. Yeah. Comment. Yeah, I love to talk about the word noble because you hear about noble simplicity or noble beauty. Noble is a funny little contraction of the word knowable in English. So imagine lazy speakers, it's knowable, 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 <laughs> and it noble. And the Latin root is the verb noscere, which means to know. We get like con, all the knowledge is a related word. So knowing. And so if the liturgy is more knowable, that means you can encounter it in its fullness when it's sung. So uh, if, you want to, if you want your spouse to know you love her and you might sing her a song, there's something more about that than just reciting her a poem or reciting her the newspaper to sing something to her. She's like, wow, you really love me. It becomes very knowable. It's in the, in the sense experience as a higher and better and fuller thing. Okay, so pr- liturgical music properly uh, celebrated makes the, the liturgy, liturgy more uh, noble. He um, continues, he says, thus the celebration acquires a more joyful expression uh, and the mystery of the sacred liturgy and its hierarchic and communal nature are manifested more clearly. Clearly, yeah. Isn't it claritas? Well, another, claritas. One yeah. of your favorite words. It is. Yeah, that's one of the constituent elements of beauty. And claritas is when the reality at, at the nature of a thing is, is um, presented. So if you want it to be knowable as what it is, you have to present it as it is in a clear way. And this hierarchical and communal is very important because many of the church documents of the 20th century speak about how, you know, these people come to church, they're all doing their own thing, they're kind of milling around, whispering to each other, and then they start singing the opening song or the entrance chant, and all of a sudden, this group of people who are doing whatever are now one group doing the same thing. So the community aspect of, of the liturgy as the members of the mystical body doing one thing is... Um, is clarified. In fact, that's that's the the next line. This, this is the next line from uh, Musicum Sacrum that he's quoting. The unity of hearts is rendered more profound by the unity of voices. Is your uh, unity of the mystical body? Well, that's right. And there, but there, the body is not running around without a head. It's not a chicken with a head cut off because the hierarchical and communal nature nature is mentioned. Because when the priest says the Lord be with you, and people say and with your spirit then you know there's a head talking to the body, and suddenly the whole group of many members who are just doing whatever, are suddenly acting as one body and they're responding to their head. So there's a back and forth, up and down, and also this unity. So um, hierarchy is usually thought of in negative light, but we're talking about good things. The whole mystical body is arranged. Jesus at the head, the people as the members. So he's going, he's quoting church documents on music and just basically reaffirming what the church has already said. He's reaffirming, in this instance, uh, music on sacrum. Wow. He, picks, okay. points that it's he picked this paragraph out to restate, because there's no new documents, but what we should go back to is this particular quote from music on sacrum 50 years ago. Yeah, wow. So this one is number, number five. There's a couple uh, other gems uh, that he's quoting yeah, let's, here. Yeah, let's hear some more. 
so there's the unity of hearts and voices. Minds are raised more clearly to celestial things oh, through I the splendor that. of sacred things. So I think celestial and splendorous and bright and transfigured and luminous and radiant are all terms that Sounds are, like the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, well, he'll say that in a second, <laughs> but think about what it means to have your mind raised to heavenly things. That doesn't mean just you have a few pious feelings or a few thoughts of some theological propositions. It means you are removed, in a sense, from this fallen earthly world and you're encountering your own future when you're glorified and heavenly and singing the praises of God around the throne of heaven. And that's that liturgical asceticism or ascesis where you become by doing. It's like becoming strong by lifting weights. You become heavenly by lifting your voice and mind up to the heavenly reality. So it's not just a thing easily to blow by. It's very, it's a central nature of liturgy. Become heavenly by doing heaven. That makes sense, right? I think so. (laughs) And apparently Pope Francis does too. And where he says, minds raised uh, more clearly to heaven. This reminds me of um, the Virgil Michael podcast we recently did about uh, uh, without intelligence. There's there's no no such thing as worship without intelligence. Right. Okay. And this Why am I able to quote that, but you aren't? <laughs> because of your intelligence. Oh, okay, got it. But and here's another you know, that's not conscious. Here. Conscious is, comes up a lot in, in Vatican II about full conscious and active participations of conscious. Know what you're doing. Know that you're perceiving heavenly realities. And here's a, a nod to the point you just made. So this last uh, line then from what he's quoting says, the whole celebration prefigures more clearly the liturgy which is carried out in the heavenly Jerusalem. Oh, um, heavenly Jerusalem. <laughs> so, I mean, this what, makes. So, later when he's talking about music that has started to become uh, what? Banal and mediocre and superficial, uh, that does not properly prefigure and sacramentalize the liturgy that's taking uh, place in heaven. It's not supposed to be banal and superficial and mundane and mediocre. It's supposed to be radiant and brilliant and eternal and what ethereal. Would, what would that mean if, if the music in the liturgy was banal and superficial? What does that mean? Can you give me an example well, of something? about that? things that aren't very important. It might reinforce your fallenness rather than lift you up to the experience you're your transfiguredness in uh, in glory in heaven, you know we all have these desires deep down for whatever it is knowledge, food. If the food presented to you is sort of dull and bland, sort of gruel, you know, I don't want that. I mean, it gets me fed, but boy, if the food is delicious and it's the most perfect version of what cherry pie crust mm-hmm. alone, yeah, just the just crust. the crust. Yeah, please send me crust. <laughs> um, then you actually it satisfies this desire for perfection, and we all have this desire to be fulfilled to have the fall overcome in us so all the music should sound as if the fall is overcome so the words will be a praise of god that be from god about god the music will be done in a way that um lifts us up to our perfected version of everything yeah well that's just what um right so you say the words that are sung in the liturgy are not banal superficial mundane rather they are based upon and perhaps maybe are the the words of scripture which is the word of the Trinity. So it's singing about something that is uh, divine and transcendent. You talk about the music that's used to sing those words, right? If it emulates or takes as its model something strictly secular or purely cultural, then it keeps our eyes and our ears uh, on this uh, this earth rather than elevating them to heaven. In uh, um, no doubt we've used this analogy before. I'm accused of repeating myself too often in these podcasts. So you'll stop Never, me if this, this Never. happens. Yeah. Did I tell you what I what used to think? What does Aiden Nichols say about that? Or did you used to think Grace was some quasi-materialistic uh, something or other? I'm just glad you're all paying attention. 
So if the music is, uh, excuse me, if the, the words are based on the word, what is the music but the breath of the Holy Spirit that is singing this word? Right? And so it's uh, the, the animating force of the church's liturgical music isn't the, uh, what, what's the spirit of the world? You like, here's a German term for you, the, the, the zeitgeist. zeitgeist. Yeah. It's the spirit of the age. Spirit yeah. of the age, yeah. The spirit that is singing. What was, the, the, what was that word? Der Zeitgeist. Zeitgeist. Okay. German sounds age. so scary when you yeah. say it. Zeitgeist. So the spirit that is singing liturgical music isn't simply the spirit of this age, but is the spirit of the Trinity itself, right? And so the, maybe we'll do a podcast on this, the theology of sacred music. It's ultimately the spirit, the Ruah of the Trinity, singing the Logos of the Trinity. Those are the two things that combine into a hymn or any type of liturgical music. The type of wait, music. Wait, go back to the logos of the Trinity. What does that mean? <laughs> it means the I'm word. I'm doing your job here, Jesse. The word. The word. Yeah, yeah I know so. what logos means. So basically the Father right, speaks himself. He, he expresses who he is and, and begets the Son. So the Son is the, the expression of the Father's reality, and then he takes on flesh so that we can see that. So the, the yeah, Father's We all know reality. music is Trinitarian dialogue. We get it. Wow. <laughs> Someone's been paying attention. <laughs> All right, so uh, th that's an example, I suppose, of what liturgical music is. It doesn't echo the spirit of the age, the words of the age, the mind of the age, simply. Rather, it uh, re-echoes the word of the Trinity, the music of the Trinity uh, of the heavenly Jerusalem. Okay, so uh, my question here is, and uh, I don't want to frustrate you guys or put you in a tight spot, but what about praise and worship music? What is that? What is that? Is that, would you say that it's something of modernity or uh, of these times? Well, we should say maybe before Dennis answers this question. He always tries to shut me down. This is, the, uh, this is precisely the point he's talking about. How do you bring the church's traditional theological patrimony and enculturate it into today's age? Sometimes it works. It's difficult to be sure. And some, sometimes it's done the backwards right where you're trying to take something from today's age and bring it into yeah the well the, the relationship and the tension between these two elements again the, this is what john the 23rd said mm -hmm. at the beginning of the council um is the question today and, and the holy father says the encounter with modernity uh, sometimes hasn't hasn't worked well right and so this is what he wants to uh, uh to reevaluate right in, so, in pius the 12 several of pius the 12th document on music documents on music he gives these different categories of music. So first this Gregorian chant, and that's proper to the liturgy itself. The, the Vatican has assembled books, the Graduale Romanum, for instance, that has the text set to the chants, and that's kind of the normative thing. But then he also speaks of modern sacred music, which is newly composed music that is nonetheless liturgical in its nature, and that's the key thing. That liturgy has a pre-existing quality, a reality, ontological reality, and you can do everything as new as yesterday, as new as today, as long as it's liturgical in its nature. That is, it uses the texts of the Mass, it, it praises God, it brings elevated speech, does all the things that all the great music of the past does, but in a new way. So that's where we get like new Mass settings. So when the new translation came out, we had all these people, all these uh, composers writing new, because that's the text of the Mass, but put to music in different ways. And that would be a way where you can incorporate a, a different style, but you're still using the text, you're still praising God, and you're still using music to elevate that. Right, so our Liturgical Institute alumnus, uh, Adam Bartlett, who's published all these Lumen Christi series on chant, he set all these English chant uh, texts to, to a new simple chant, 
but he did it in a way that is very cognizant of what the tradition was and did things that made the text make sense, which is what liturgical text is supposed to do. So there are these famous modes, you know, in Shannon, but mode seven is the triumphant mode. Bum, 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 What's a, bum, what bum, is bum, a mode? It's a way of arranging notes and half step and whole step relationships so that they can sound sad or triumphant or celestial. The, the different modes have traditionally acquired different. Is attributes. it right to say that these traditional eight modes are now basically reduced to the major and the minor? Chords or is that not? Uh, the, there's a relationship there, okay. yeah. So if you go, da, 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 sounds diminished. There's that too. But <laughs> do re mi is very happy. Do re mi is very mysterious, right? So that how you arrange half notes and whole notes has a different mood. And so mode seven traditionally was the trumpet one. That's the one of the Star Wars theme and the Indiana mm-hmm. Jones theme. So it's the, a John Williams mode. Well, actually, he's he's involving that tradition too. So if the text is about the king triumphant enters Jerusalem, he picked mode seven, and then he had the notes grow from the words. It's as consistent with the nature of the liturgy as as something from the 11th century, but was composed five years ago. And so if it does that, great, it's liturgical. See, but what, what we see from what you're saying here, Dennis, what the Holy Father is saying, what Musicom Sacrum is saying, is it's giving uh, composers, and listeners for that matter too, choir directors, some particular... Uh, standards by which liturgical music can be judged. And these standards are not necessarily the same that we would find in a secular culture. So some of these mm-hmm. standards are, is it does it help one to enter into the mystery? Is it based upon the text and does it clarify the text? Is it inspired by the Holy Spirit? Is it a part of the church's patrimony uh, applicable in today's age? Um, I mean, these are not the things that I suppose someone like Lady Gaga or U2 or something, they're not thinking these thoughts when they compose their music, but the church must be composing music, performing music, hearing music, according to these uh, litmuses. Right. I like to compare it to brain surgery. Um, So a a brain surgeon would never say, I'm going to decide for myself what a brain is, and when I do this surgery, I'm going to connect nerves any old way. There's a pre-existing reality called the healthy brain, and his job is to make that brain work when he fixes it. Same thing with music. Liturgical music has a character that pre-exists us, and our job is to express that in a way that hasn't been done before. Modernity, on the other hand, you know, this gets into the larger questions of what modernity is about. Yeah, this kind of talks about our beauty podcast about, you know, what, what's subjectively beautiful and what's objectively beautiful. Right, and sub- modernity is typically defined by the dominance of subjectivity. So that means the person, the individual, has a subjective response to something, or a composer might just express something that they want to express, and they don't like to be told they have to conform to some external reality. So modern music, typically, popular music, is uh, tends to stimulate the senses and the passions, you know, and it tells these stories that are very personal. You know, you left me and I wanted to kill myself. Or, you know, whatever these crazy cowboy songs are. Or, you know, uh, country music's very good at that. It's always about mm-hmm. the, the guy who left you with three babies. The tractor, the, uh, the house, the wife. All yeah, that, and then you yeah. got hit by the freight train, you know, yeah. all that stuff. And there's a focus on the performer. You know, you never know who's the author of a Gregorian chant, but you go to a concert for a singer, not for anonymous uh, song. And the text That's a really good point. I never thought about that. Yeah, the subjectivity, the primacy of the individual. Okay. And usually, often, the text is secondary in music. You know, many times we'll be humming a melody and then we, or even saying the words and we don't even know what they mean. And then you stop and think, it's like, what did I just say? <laughs> I was with somebody the other day and we were listening to, it was just on the background, though. We are spirits in the material world. You know, it's, we are spirits in the material world. It's this kind of song from the 80s. Please. And I just stopped and I'm like, 
wait, we're not spirits in the material world. That's like denying the incarnation and our bodily deaths. It's, it's, you just saying heresy. Well, exactly. We proclaim heresy for <laughs> the radio. <laughs> we don't even know it. Well, that's just how we many don't times, pay attention. Have you heard the song or sung the song and not even known what is, uh, uh, what it's, what it's conveying? Right. right. Many but, times. But liturgical music being in this sort of objective mode does the opposite. Um, there's an objective primacy and it tends to quiet the passions. You know, Gregorian chant never makes you want to go like conquer an army or, you know, they don't say sex, drugs, and Gregorian chant, right? It's mm-hmm. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You're cranking up uh, the Gregorian chant before you go out for the big football well, game. That's going to be like our next podcast, party. Sex, Drugs, and Gregorian chant. <laughs> <laughs> and it's often anonymous. Who are the great chant composers? Well, we don't really know. Um, and the singer disappears behind the text in liturgical chant. Typically, they should. So the, if the uh, cantor goes out and does their Broadway show, it's like, look at me, instead of allow the words of God to, um, to be primary. And then the text is primary when they compose it. The music grows from the text itself. This is all the stuff that the 20th century rediscovered precisely so that the words of the Mass could become more penetrable, penetrable for the people in the pews and increase their active participation in the liturgy. Yeah, I think that's kind of where I was getting at with, with praise and worship. And I'm, I'm actually a fan of praise and worship, but... Um, but in a devotional sense, because well, right. because you're right. I mean, it draws emotions, and it and it is emotive, and it makes you want to do something. It makes you feel something, and and that's that's how it happens. Right. But in the mass, whenever you're doing chants or any of any of those things, it puts me out of my comfort zone, and it puts me. And, and the mass is it's the mass is not how I am already. It's calling me to a higher level, and that's kind of right. what we're talking about. Emotions are good. Right. It doesn't, it's not trying to take this mystery and then make it relatable to me in my own personal way, like a devotional would. It's uh, the mass and the chants and the music is, this is what it is, and it's calling me there. Yeah, it's, we've said this before. I think devotions uh, start with the heart and with the ground and with our humanity, and they transcend, they move up. The liturgy is more of a top-down type of operation where it's the descension of God into our world and meant to divinize us. But they meet to, the, the, a healthy spiritual life has to have both right. of these. I think that's, note that's the Gordini episode. Well, that's the crux of I think most liturgical conflicts and discussions mm-hmm. is the misinterpretation of what you, what you I just think, said. I think Chris. you're right. I, think you're I mean, right. I, when when I think of any time I've heard of a dispute about liturgy, it's been that's been the discrepancy between the two viewpoints somebody's looking at it from one side and the other person's looking at it from the other right this is why ontology matters because devotional music (laughs) devotional music has a character and it's a good character you know a dog is a dog cat's a cat devotion is devotion liturgical is liturgical and they're both good sometimes people pit them against each other like oh traditional music is good and worship praise and worship is bad or vice versa it's not so much one's good or bad. It's just one is liturgical by nature and one's devotional by nature. Sometimes they overlap a little bit, but primarily devotional should not replace liturgical. What uh, Father Martis, uh, uh, of blessed for, memory, for director of the liturgical institute at one time, would say is that when the devotional life goes away, then the liturgical, the mass has to do everything. All of the, our eggs are in the the mass basket, and so it sort of we force it to become devotional as well but that uh, those desires and sentiments should be met with a devotional life but maybe th- here's here's pope francis's last line in his yeah, address let's go back to the document that right. we're talking about and it, but it's it's uh, it, it makes this point uh, exactly 
It says, sacred music and liturgical singing have the task to give us the sense of God's glory, of his beauty, and of his holiness that envelops us like a luminous cloud. Yeah. Wow. Luminous. I like that luminous cloud. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in there. I mean, it, it's about God. It's, it's, it's not about my sentiments to God. It's about God's ontological reality coming to meet us. And again, this word luminous cloud, I, the, we read, uh, was it the second Sunday of Lent? Is that the transfiguration? Yeah. When we read about I, that? That's exactly what I thought of when you Go said ahead. that. And we should. I mean, the, the, it, but does your music director think that? When he or she prepares music, does the pastor think that? Do the choir members think that? Do the assembly think that? That the music we're singing should be enveloping us, not in a mundane, banal, superficial dust, mm-hmm. but in a luminous, mysterious cloud of transfigured glory? Well, I would say the latter, right? In liturgical singing, primarily. Yeah. But there's a place for devotional singing. I remember several years ago we had... Terrible car accident here on the seminary, and two seminarians died, and there were people I knew very well. And uh, we had a little prayer service, and we sang, Here I Am, Lord, you know, Here I Am, Lord, mm-hmm. which is typically a song I say, Oh man, we're singing that again. But when I was aching and my heart was raw and I just wanted to cry, and I, all I could say was, Here I Am, Lord, you know, I can't, I can't do anything else. And I was like, Wow, this is the right music for this occasion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was very appropriate. In right. that devotional setting of expressing my pain. But typically, that's not the normal liturgical experience. Um, and so, in fact, in this document, Pope Francis here says that um, it's about participating in the theophany that takes place in every Eucharistic celebration. The theophany is the breaking into the world of God, this um, manifestation of God. So it's not so much about expressing my condition, it's about bringing my condition to this great light, luminous cloud of God's presence so that I can be transformed. Wow, excellent. Well, it's certainly worth the read. Music Am Sacram, if you haven't read it for a while, if you've never read it and you're not as familiar with it as you might be, uh, this would be a good occasion to pick up the document, to find it online, to read it again in light of what Pope Francis is saying, in light of the fact that it's it's kind of the normative liturgical, the normative document on liturgical music. Especially you, Father Dan Steele. Can I torture oh, Dan Steele for yeah, a second? Yeah, definitely. That guy needs to listen. Father Dan Steele, as you may recall, was the guy who asked a question at lunch that got this whole uh, podcast started. And he's never listened to an episode. He's a priest of Yakima, Washington Diocese. So if anybody's in Yakima Diocese and you know Father Dan Steele, Ask him, have you listened to a podcast yet? Have you listened to Liturgy Guys yet? Harass him until he listens. Yeah, absolutely. We love you, Father Dan, but listen. And uh, is there a name to this document that Pope Francis released? Is it just a letter, or what do we call it? Uh, it's not really. It was an address to participants mm-hmm. of this uh, conference on okay. Musicum Sacrum. So, yeah, March so 4th. I'll link to both Musicum Sacrum and this letter, so you can read both of them in the, uh, the link description to the podcast. So Listen and read, Father Dan. Absolutely, Father Dan, especially you. So uh, I think it's time to answer a liturgy question. That's more fun than Soda Crush. (laughs) Hey, Liturgy Guy listeners, this is your host, Jesse Weiler. And before we get into this week's email question, I wanted to quickly remind you about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference coming up in April 2017. If you're a young adult and you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, both Dennis and Chris will be speaking at this Young Adult Liturgy Conference in Chicago so to learn more about that, go to www.betransfigured.com. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. 
This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? This week, we have a question from Patrick. And Patrick says, I have often seen statues being covered during Lent. Does this happen during Lent or just during the Easter Triduum? The answer is neither. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, here's is what. It, is this a statue of limitations? It does limit the statues. Okay, okay, got it. Is this, is this still permitted, even? There's a question. You see it in a yeah. lot of more traditional parishes, and Anglican churches do it a lot too. Yeah, it it is permitted. The, the the I don't know the dirty little liturgical secret was it really wasn't permitted until the third edition of the Roman Missal in English. Wow. So the sacramentary uh, up till 2011, there was a rubric after Sunday of the fourth week of Lent. So you'd get to, excuse me after Saturday of the fourth week of Lent. Uh, there followed this rubric that if the diocesan bishops conference approves then statues can be covered. And the fact is that our local bishops' conference never approved it. You are the Albert Einstein of rubrics. Man, I <laughs> love listening to you talk <laughs> rubrics. So, but now what's happened is a couple of things. One, they, the local bishops' conferences, the USCCB, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, have officially uh, allowed, permitted, encouraged statues to be covered. That's the first thing. And then they, I think, did a good thing is they moved it from uh, the end of Saturday of the fourth week of Lent, which is kind of an obscure place to mm -hmm. put, I guess, and they've moved it right up in front of Sunday of the fifth week in Lent, so it's in a more conspicuous place. And what the rubric says is this, in the dioceses of the United States, the practice of covering crosses and images throughout the church from this Sunday may be observed. Crosses remain covered until the end of the celebration of the Lord's Passion on Good Friday. Images remain covered until the beginning of the Easter Vigil. Well, why, why the difference there? Or why would we do this at all? Yeah, yeah let's, also let's that. Let's just do that one. Okay. Well, that's, that's a, they're both difficult questions. I can imagine why the crosses and images are separate. Let's try that. Go ahead. No, no, well, you do. Well, my guess is that you're, you're talking about Good Friday, and you know, as Lent is getting more and more close to the Triduum, you should be getting sort of more and more um, abstemious or more and more uh, realizing that the death of Christ is coming. Good Friday would be the time when the death of Christ would be accentuated, and so you oh, would want yeah. to uncover okay, yeah. the crosses on that That day. makes sense. Yeah, but it's not until after the liturgy, though, is finished. Uh -huh. So you go all the way through the liturgy with just, uh, we talked about this before, there's only to be this one cross. So I think what's, what's happening, there's a combination of feasting and fasting. Uh, the, the, the history of this is very difficult, at least for me, to trace. But it's as if the church wants to have us fast from even things that we would see, Right? And so it's kind of a covering of crosses, but for the sake of that we can focus on um, some of those things that have been covered. You know, um, I remember on Ash Wednesday, I never wanted a Culver's cheeseburger so badly as I did on Ash Wednesday. But that's always how it works. <laughs> it's not always how it works. Oh. Well, I know what you mean. But Get the, the curds. The day, They're just as good. The day that you can't have it, you can't see it, you can't taste it, you can't touch it, 
is the day that you're obsessed about it. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's a similar psychology going on here that you know the covering of crosses, the covering of images helps us in some way to actually focus our vision on that very same thing. And I think for the Easter Vigil, if you're going to be talking again about the glory and the fullness of liturgical celebration, you want to have all those images there. The been, sa- all the saints. Yeah, you've been denied yeah. the view of them and sort of fasting from them and then Boom, you get to feast yeah. uh, with yeah. those images. And in a way, it would draw your attention to them because they, you couldn't see them before, and now you can. Yeah. Yeah. So in the end, the answer is uh, from the beginning of the Sunday, the fifth week of Lent. All right, Patrick, I hope that answered your question. If you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.